Well, that was wonderful. Nice job. Yeah. Well, um, so my wife Maggie's here with me, and we've uh, celebrated 45 years, so we're 20 years behind you. But doesn't matter how long you've been married, I'm sure we all have found that there are some things in our married life where we see things a little bit differently. I mean, that's what makes life interesting and challenging sometimes, and the, the different approach to things. And so one of the things for us is it comes to um, murder mysteries and movies and TV shows, that kind of thing. Maggie has no problem picking up a murder mystery and flipping to the end and find out who done it, and then, you know, going through and reading it, or, or fast-forwarding to the movie and getting to the end and then finding out who done it, and then it all makes sense. Where well, I want to read it the way the author intended and to let the story unfold or let the movie unfold. You know, you know how that works, right? Okay. Now, if you watch Hallmark movies, you don't need to worry about it because when they start, you know how they're going to end. You don't have to fast forward because those things. But there are things, some things in life that it might just be a little more helpful to um, know where it's going and how it ends to make some sense to a lot of that. And the book of Job is like that. How many of you have struggled through Job? All right? You read through Job, and it's a challenge to get through all of that. And sometimes we just get so bogged down, and, you know, where's it going, you know? And the simplest version of the story is Job is a righteous man at the very beginning of the book, wealthy, good family, all that. He loses all of that and tries to figure out why it is that, you know, all this has happened to him. And then at the very end of the story, it ends, and he's got his wealth back and more children and family, and he lives happily ever after. But it's that in-between part, the wrestling part, that makes it um, a, a challenge to read and, and to digest and to really um, figure out what to do on that. And so, um, uh, and, and most of what we think about Job is this man who endures so much suffering and pain and trying to work his way through that. And in fact, that's usually what he's known for. Um, in the book of James, for example, in chapter 5, James points to Job as an example of perseverance and hanging in there through tough times. And we use the phrase ourselves, right? The patience of Job, right? We do that. And so that's what we often look at Job for. But I want to suggest to you that the book of Job is about something much bigger than that. And to get to that, I have to go against my tendency to want to try to read all the way through. And from time to time, I just need to go to the end and really see what the big picture is so that all of this makes sense. And so that's what I want to do with you all this morning is... um, some uh, words from Job, looking towards the end of Job. And you have that in your bulletin. I'm going to read it from from my translation. But um, before we read, uh, would you join me in prayer? Father, this is your word, ancient words that come to us, but speak to us in this time and today. So, Father, pour out your spirit upon this, your word, as it is read and upon my words, and upon the thoughts of our hearts, that we would know you more dearly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
It's been my custom through my years of ministry uh, coming out of the Old Testament. When we hear the word of God, we need to honor that word. And so to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. So I invite you to stand with me in honor of God's word as we now read. From Job, beginning chapter 38, verse 1. Listen to the word of God. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. He said, Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its flooring set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb, when I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said, this far you may come and no farther. Here is where your proud waves halt. Chapter 40. Will the one who can, the Lord said to Job, will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. And then Job answered the Lord, I'm unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. And then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you will answer me. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's? And can your voice thunder like his? Then adorn yourself with glory and splendor and clothe yourself in honor and majesty. Unleash the fury of your wrath. Look at every proud man and bring him low. Look at every proud man and humble him. Crush the wicked where they stand. Bury them all in the dust together. Shroud their faces in the grave. Then I myself will admit to you that your own right hand can save you. Chapter 42, then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Well, friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, I know that we all find ourselves at various times in our lives looking at life around us and things that go on and, this, and where things seem to be uh, confusing or even unfair. And we wonder what that's all about and, and what's going on and trying to make some kind of sense out of those things. And it's just natural for us to look at things in that way. And, and Job lets us do that because it's in the Scriptures in that way. Then it gives us permission to do those same kinds of things and to wrestle with life as it comes to us. And one of those areas, the theological term, is theodicy which means God's justice. 
How can we say that God is just when things seem to be so unfair, when this is happening and it doesn't make sense, or when good things are happening to bad people and bad things are happening to good people and, and, and all of that stuff? You have questions like that, right? It, it's part of life. Well, um, Job deals with all of that. And the basics of the story, a little longer version than what I gave you a few minutes ago, chapters 1 and 2 tell us that Job was a righteous man. And he was wealthy. He was blessed with ten children and a wife. And he had all of this stuff. And that comes in chapters 1 and 2. But what those chapters also tell us is what's going on behind the scenes and above that, where Satan comes to God and says, you know, Job is a righteous man, well, duh, he would be because you've blessed him and he's got all this stuff. But I bet you if you took all that stuff away from him, then he would renounce his faith. And God says, okay, let's try it. And he goes on there. And then for the, so Job loses everything. He loses his wealth. His children die. He loses his health. He has his wife, but she's not the most supportive person either in all that. And for the next 35 chapters, Job, along with his friends, try to figure out what is going on and what this is all about and why this is happening. And it goes on and on and on. Now, there are some real gems in those passages. Let me just give you a couple of them. In chapter 9, Job says this, God is not a man like me, that I might answer him, that we might confront each other in court. If only there were someone to arbitrate between us, to lay his hand upon us both, someone to remove God's rod from me so that his terror would frighten me no more. Boy, does that sound like something, someone we talk about who shows up later on in Scripture, right? That's about Jesus, the one who comes in between. I think that's a great passage. Or if you're familiar with Handel's Messiah, that great oratorio, and the Hallelujah Chorus, this, you know, this crowning moment of it. And right after that, there's a soprano solo who comes in and sings these words from Job 19. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end He will stand upon the earth and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. Good stuff. Really, in there. But along in all that are these lengthy conversations that Job has with his friends, those he calls miserable comforters, who come to him as they're trying to make sense out of what is going on. And their assumption is that God blesses faithfulness and punishes unfaithfulness or sin. And so if there's something bad, something wrong going on with Job, then somehow Job has done something to offend God because that's the way that things are playing out. I mean, if Job is as righteous as he's described, then he should be being blessed, right? We hear that in the church, in some parts of the church today, right? It's called the prosperity gospel. Now, that has nothing to do with where you all live, okay? Or the, I know there's a gospel preached in this church. I know Eric, and he's a great friend of mine, and I know he's, pre he's preaching the true gospel. But the prosperity gospel, or health and wealth, 
is a theology that we hear a lot that people say, oh, you know, if you just, if you have enough faith, and if your faith is strong enough, then you will have all that the world has to offer, all the health and the wealth and the possessions and all of that. And if you don't have those things, then there's something wrong with your faith that you're losing all that. There are people who buy into that. Well, um, that's the way Job's friends were thinking. But Job knew that um, that wasn't the case. And, and we know that too, you know. Um, you read, the, read Scripture more broadly and there's no place that God just says, if you're faithful, then you'll get a blank check and you'll have a mansion on Easy Street and that's the way life is going to be. Jesus, in his Sermon on the Plain, in Luke chapter 6, even says, the blessed ones are the poor and the hungry. You know, we have that. And, yes, we can look around and see many faithful Christians who are poor and who are hungry. We may not see them so much in our culture, in this country, but you go to places in Africa where, where the Christian faith is strong, and those people don't have anything. Where, you know, where, where are all those promises? And there are many Christians who, who are sick and who die prematurely, we might say, who die young. And even more so than that, there are many Christians, faithful Christians, who are persecuted for their faith and who even today are dying at the hands of persecutors. Are we saying there's something wrong with their faith? I mean, if there's something wrong with their faith, well, my, uh, you know, mine, I, I, I don't want to stand up against their, the faith of some of those people. You know, and then in response to um, how Job's friends are arguing that um, he's done something wrong, Job, Job defends himself. And he said that he's really done nothing wrong to deserve that. In fact, in one place, uh, he says, I'm blameless. And in chapter 31, he, he goes through a long list of good things on his resume that would make him stand up before God. Sexual purity, honesty, he's treated his servants well, he's cared for the poor and the hungry and the naked and for orphans and all of those kinds of things. He's done all of that. And in contrast to how his friends are saying that even if it seems like the wicked are prospering for a while, it's going to end. It doesn't last long. And Job says, no, it seems to be going on and on and on for a long time. And so he's trying to figure out what the true picture is and why all of this. And I don't think that we are any different when we look at the world around us. We have those same kinds of questions when we see things going on. And Why? Why is this going on? This doesn't make sense. I mean, one of the big stories in, in the last few weeks in the Pittsburgh area has been the, has been the uh, trial of uh, the man who killed the Jews at the Tree of Life Synagogue. And, you know, bringing up those wounds from what, four years ago or so. Um, you know, the verdict would come to the other day. But, um, you know, why would innocent people who go to worship one day, and it's not just that Jewish synagogue, it's happened in churches, even in communities like this. Why do those innocent folks, or why do, do children who go to school one day, or people who just go shopping 
at a Walmart or a mall someplace, why do they get gunned down in broad daylight? Why? Yes, we asked that, right? I mean, it just it doesn't make sense. Or why, why do innocent civilians in Ukraine lose their lives or lose their homes and property and all that they have in a war that doesn't make sense? Or, or why is it that some countries get, and people in those countries never seem to be able to get enough even food and they have to watch their children die of starvation? Or why? I, I, I've, no, I've known some people who, who never smoked a cigarette in their life and die of lung cancer and other people who smoke like a chimney and lived an old age. Where, where does that make sense? Or why is it that you or I wrestle with whatever issue or problem or addiction that's there and we pray and pray and pray and pray and it's, and it's still there and it doesn't seem to go away. And there's so much in the world around us that doesn't make sense the way we look at that and we wonder and we ask those questions. Why is it that good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people? If you go on Google and type that in, it'll come up with a whole long list of articles that people have written trying to deal with that kind of question. And 40 years ago, a Jewish rabbi, Harold Kushner, wrote a book entitled When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And a lot of people took issue with how he answered that question and dealt with that. But sold over 4 million copies, and not just in English. It's a universal question and dilemma that people deal with. And as we, as we try to deal with that, what happens so often is, like, like Job and his friends, we, we, we face limitations and we get so focused on what it is right here with me or us in trying to deal with that. And we forget the bigger picture. For one thing, all, all we can really see is, you know, we're, we're limited by physical stuff. We just see this world and the things around us. But in Job, there's that broader picture of what's going on in the spiritual realm that is still a part of life today. Read Ephesians 6 about spiritual warfare and all that is that bigger picture. Or we're, we're limited by how we understand blessings, especially as wealthy Americans, and we, we approach things materialistically. And, and so blessings are measured in terms of good health, money in the bank, nice houses, nice cars, those kinds of things is, how, is pretty much how we count blessings. And we forget that there are other things too. Or in our sinfulness and our total depravity, it's so easy just to think about ourselves in that, where Jesus said, you've got to deny yourself. It's not about you. Deny yourself. Take up the cross and follow, and follow me. But sin keeps drawing us back to ourselves. Or part of what, co- what leaves us in a dilemma is, is the sin of idolatry. You know, the first commandment of the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. And yet, we have a tendency to take things around us, even good things, and elevate them to a point that they almost take God's place, or maybe sometimes they do. And I think one of the things that I see going on in, in, our, in our country these days is, for many people, politics becomes an idol. 
We think that, oh, if we could just get the right person or people in power, then we will be saved. But you know, our salvation is not in kings or princes or presidents. Our salvation is only in Jesus. But we get those things mixed up in all of that. So where do we go? Well, it's easy when we look around us and see that things are out of whack or seem unfair. We go looking for answers, but where is it that we're looking? When we wrestle with questions of theodicy, remember that word I used a while ago? God's justice and why things are there. Do we get ourselves caught up in the middle of the book of Job? where they're trying to figure all that out from their perspective? Or can we go to the end of Job? You wondered if I was ever going to get to the text, right, that we have today. But that's where the text that I read gets us, where God speaks. You know, for the first, for most of the book, God is just standing back, watching and listening to Job and his friends wrestle with all this, and he's quiet, and they're asking questions about God and how this could happen and trying to figure God out and all of that. And then finally, in chapter 38, God speaks. Now, I only gave you a sampling of that. God goes on, really, for several chapters, but the essence of what he's saying is, look, who are you to question what I do? Where were you when I created the world? How, you know, who brought all of this into being? You think you could run this world better than I can, huh? You want to give that a shot? And he goes on and on like that. And, and some of those in, in, the, in your Isaiah 40 reading and, and Romans 11 reading, it just ties right in with that. You know, if, hang on to those, these bulletins you have. And if you're, if you're ever struggling, just read all of that. Because God is basically saying, I'm God, and you're not. I'm God, and you're not. And Job is blown away by that. Literally blown away. God speaks to him out of a storm, out of a whirlwind, and God blows him away. And Job can do nothing at the end but fall in humility and repentance before God and submit himself to God. I know that you can do all things, he says. No plan of yours can be thwarted. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And Job says, you're God, and I'm not. And he can live with that, acknowledging God's sovereignty. He's God, and we're not. How might that play out? I want to suggest to you two um, areas that, this, that, that we might uh, apply this, and there are many, many more. We don't have time to do all of that, okay? But one is, you know, Job and his friends were asking why, 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 and trying to figure out the why. You ever ask that? Trying to figure out the why in those things? Well, the better question to ask in that is, for what purpose? What is God? Remember, he's God and we're not. What is God doing in and through 
these things, even in some of the most difficult, painful kinds of experiences. Remember the Joseph story in Genesis and how his brothers just treated him poorly and sent him off slavery into Egypt and there he was falsely arrested and all those kind of terrible things happened to him. And finally, you know, Job and, and Joseph would have had every right to say, why did you do this to me? And, and cry out to God, God, why are you letting this happen to me? But when he finally meets his brothers, what does he say? Genesis 50, verse 20. You, you intended to harm me, but God intended this for good to accomplish what's now being done, the saving of many lives. What is God doing, even in the midst of those most difficult or unfair or, you know, where's God's justice and those kinds of things? What is God doing? Can we not be humble then before God and seek His purposes and submit to that. Remember, He's God, and we're not. And also, think of how this can impact how we look at the world around us and what's going on. Uh, anybody else feel like things are just crazy out there and getting crazier? And, we, and it's real easy from our perspective as Christians to take the moral high ground and we're superior, we got it all right, and they're all wrong, and they're... And, and it's easy to fall into that and start judging all of that in that way. You know, I mean, this month, all this Pride, Pride Month stuff going on, but it's not just that issue. It, it's across the board every month of the year. And constantly we're finding issues beyond our walls that just, what is going on? And we want to come in and say something and even take on the role of judge. You know, yes, we need to speak God's truth, but we need to do that with grace. But remember that we are not the judge. God is. You know, Jesus tells the story, the parable of the, the wheat and the tares and the good stuff growing up in the midst of the bad stuff and they're all there together and they want to sort it all out right then. But Jesus says, no, just leave it to the end. And when the harvest time comes, then the harvester will take care of it all. I wonder how much, how often we find ourselves wanting to get in there and be the harvester at those times, thinking that that's our, our job to do that. And we take that upon ourselves. And whether we do that with, with bitter words thrown out there or blasts on Facebook or whatever it might be, but rather say, you know what? He's God and we're not. And he's the judge, and we're not. And to stay to stay clear on that, you know. And you, you can apply this in so many ways. And I can't tell you how many times in recent years, as as I've as I've meditated on this text, and and I hear various preachers or speakers say almost, and almost in these words, because he's God and we're not. It's not just me. It's the word of God speaking to so many and in so many places that we need to keep that in perspective. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, says, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. 
So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. You see, the ultimate purpose is all seen in the light of God's eternity. Westminster, Westminster Catechism, study that. What is the chief end of man? Anybody know that one? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And it takes us into that forever when we will see God and we will know God face to face and it will all come together. In the meantime, while we await that, may we be like Job, humble, repentant, trusting in God to do His work and to work His purposes out, even if they don't make a lot of sense. Because remember, He's God, and we're not. Let's pray. Father, we come before you as the one who created all and who uh, just the majesty of, of who you are beyond our comprehension. We find ourselves living in a world where there's confusion and chaos marred by sin. Father, help us as your people to be humble before you, to walk with you, to let you do your work that we would always acknowledge that you are God and we are not. And to you be all glory. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen.